How many of you have ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? Raise your hand, okay, quite a few of you. The actual title is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come. Uh, that was written in 1678 by John Bunyan. Now, interestingly, this book has never gone out of print. It's been printed in over 200 languages. So this is a, a well-read book. This is a very popular classic. And uh, I do believe that in accordance to sales, they, they estimate that the only uh, book that has sold more than Pilgrim's Progress in, the, in novels is uh, the Bible. So quite remarkable that that classic work there has continued to have influence through the centuries. As you know, Pilgrim's Progress is detailing the journey of Christian. And Christian is a, uh, a lost individual. He has this dream of a man dressed in rags who is facing away from his home. In one hand, he carries a book, and that book is the Bible. And then while on his back, he has this great burden uh, from his sins. So Christian, awaking from that vision, that dream that he had, he interprets that person and that dream being him. And so he begins to seek out the uh, celestial city, to seek out the city of Zion. An evangelist comes and helps point the way for Christian to go. Now again, that book just details all of his journeys, all of the trials that he faces. And uh, many of the trials that, he, that follow are quite intense. One of those being Apollyon. I don't know if you remember that part, the prince of the city of destruction, Apollyon, comes and he's coming himself to thwart Christian's progress. Christian at this time in the story is uh, suited up in armor. He has a sword, a shield, and he's coming to this battleground. Apollyon is this hybrid being, part dragon, part bear, part human, part fish. And before their battle, Apollyon engages in conversation with Christian. He begins to call Christian unfaithful. He, be, he says, thou hast already been unfaithful in thy service to him, uh, to the prince, to the king of kings, and how dost thou think he, to receive wages of him? And of course, Apollyon goes through and begins to recount all of Christian's failures to him. Christian, he replies back and says, all this is true and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Apollyon then breaks out into a rage and he begins to battle. He begins with this saying, I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws and people. I come out on purpose to withstand thee. Christian, as that attack is beginning, he says to Apollyon, beware what you do for I'm in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. I, I mean, this is the epic battle in this story. And as the battle is going on and as it comes to the end, Christian is able to strike that defeating blow to Apollyon. And then John Bunyan, and I have this for you on the screen, he makes this statement. He says, in this combat, no man can imagine, unless he had seen and heard, as I did, what yelling and hideous roaring 
Apollyon made all the time of the fight. He spake like a dragon and on the other side, what sighs and groans burst from Christian's heart. It was the dreadfulest sight that I ever saw. In this moment, this battle that was going on, Bunyan said that this was just, you had to be there to, to see it. It was the dreadfulest sight he had ever seen. This account of the battle between Christian and Apollyon is really symbolic of our spiritual battles today. Uh, we would be mistaken to see our enemy, quite honestly, as our unsaved neighbor, as other people, uh, promoters of sinful lifestyles, uh, those that push evil agendas. For us to look at those humans, to look at those people, and call them our enemies would not be accurate. The Apostle Paul tells us, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You know, like me, I'm sure you get frustrated with things that happen in our world today. Uh, we become broken over the direction of our culture, of just the way things keep trending, yet people are not our enemies. God loves people. Our enemy is a spiritual enemy. The battles we face are spiritual. They are real and yet invisible. So knowing this, how do we battle? Knowing this, how do we fight a good fight? Because when I get to the end of my life, I want to be able to look back and say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. How do we earnestly contend for the faith? If you would, I'd like for you to take your Bibles. And this morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. And that'll serve as the place of our text this morning, of our study. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 and 9. Peter is writing and he wants his readers to remember that they're in a spiritual battle. And he wants to give them some imperatives here. He wants to remind them, hey, the enemy is real. But let me give you some imperatives that is going to help you as you continue to live out your faith. First Peter chapter five, beginning in verse number eight, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same inflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Today I wanna to talk about that roaring lion, and I want to talk about what you and I could do when we have to engage in spiritual battle with the roaring lion. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is our adversary, as Peter says. The devil is the one that's behind all the evil of this world. And I do believe John Bunyan was right that that spiritual enemy and the battles we face are the dreadfulest. And like Christian facing Napoleon, Peter's audience were facing that roaring lion. They were already um, 
scattered abroad. They were already in several different places. And here they are having to deal with these spiritual battles as well. I don't know how many of you have ever been to the zoo with, and there's been a lion there and you've had that opportunity to hear that guttural roar of that lion. I went onto YouTube and I was going, I was playing lion roars, you know, I was just playing and listening to it. And, I, and again, sometimes you get those really deep ones and you're like, oh man, that's, that's kind of powerful to hear. I'm always thankful when I go to the zoo and you go to where the lions are or any of those cats are, they always have good fences, uh, moats and, you know, uh, cages for them because I would not want to be standing next to some wild lion somewhere in this world. That would not be my, I am not a Benaya, okay? I would not be chasing the lion into the pit on a snowy day. That would not be me. And yet here it is, we know that our enemy goes about as that roaring lion. When lions roar, often they're hungry or they're really, really angry. And what they do with that roar is quite terrifying. Peter picks a great analogy here. The devil goes about as this roaring lion. The devil's trying to terrify us, trying to make us afraid, fill us with anxieties. He's trying to uh, render God's people ineffective for God's work. And for some 6,000 years, Satan has done that. And let me tell you, he is effective at what he does. He knows at just the right time to strike. He just knows at the right time to roar. He knows how he can trip us up. He has already found ways to ruin the influence of God's people throughout the centuries. But it's interesting to me, we need to be clear that he reigns over a defeated kingdom. There's coming a day when his end will be fully realized and he'll be cast away and gone forever he has already lost and I am so thankful for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ that he is the one that is the king of kings and he is the one that is in control of all things and you and I we don't have to go around in this world being afraid even though we can hear those roars in our life we don't have to be afraid because we serve the sovereign, all-powerful King of Kings. And yet, unfortunately for us Christians, there are times that we're taken by his wiles. We're swayed by his temptations. We're uh, drawn in by those pleasures of sin. You know, this reality leaves many of us defeated in despair. So let's look at what Peter gives to us in these two verses that can help combat our enemy's strategy and what we can do to have that victory on the battlefield against that old roaring lion, Satan. The first imperative I see is this, be sober, be sober. Now, immediately we're drawing this connection when you hear the word sober to alcohol. Okay, because if they're driving under the influence, they weren't sober. They, uh, they weren't in control of themselves because the alcohol was in the driver's seat. And sadly today, you know, that physical drunkenness is rife in our culture today. 
Solomon warns us against alcohol. He says in Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. It is foolish for you and me to partake in alcohol. There, there is no balance. God has clearly condemned it in his scripture. It is a mocker. And if, if it's unwise to take it, and God is all wise, why would we go after alcohol at any level? And so I see the alcohol here as a good representation of what happens when we let sin, when we give in to temptation. As alcohol becomes the driver of our mind. So when we allow sin to come in, when we give in to temptation and we continue to do that, we're allowing sin to drive us. I think what Peter's talking about here is, if you will allow me to say it this way, spiritual drunkenness. Spiritual drunkenness. He's talking about giving ourselves to that temptation that's going to drive us away from God. And what he's advocating to us when he says be sober, he's saying refute intoxicating influences. That you and I need to refute intoxicating influences. Intoxicating influence are thoughts that lead us deeper into sin. Maybe you've uh, said some of these thoughts to yourself before. Hey, you know what? No one will know. No one will know. Well, we can be behind a computer screen and we can be looking at things that we ought not be looking at. And we can say, well, no one will know. We can begin to try to measure how bad it really is. We can say, you know what? It's not that bad. It's really not that bad. There's different things we can participate in and we, we can begin to just measure it that way. And I always think if I ever catch myself saying, it's not that bad. So it is bad, but it's just not that bad. Well, how bad does it have to be? It's bad. It's not good. Satan loves to use this intoxicating influence of you deserve this. No, no, no. You deserve this. I had a really bad problem with ice cream, okay? Just a bad problem with the end of the day end of the day, I would get my ice cream bowl and I would load that thing up with probably far, like half a gallon or not half a gallon, half of a half of a gallon of ice cream. I mean, I would load this thing up. And after, after work, I, I, I would say, Josh, you deserve this. And boy, I would eat that. I, every scoop, I deserve this. You know what ended up happening for me? I had... Uh, gained a little weight from all of that. You know, we get caught up with that phrase, you deserve this. It's dangerous, these intoxicating influences. See, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, I, I want you to see that he, Peter is focused on the mind as being that battleground. He says in verse 13 of chapter 1, wherefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. There it is again, there's our word, be sober. Gird up the loins of your mind, hey, get ready, there's a battle going on. Again, this idea of sober is curbing uh, those intoxicating influences. Those things that would control our mind, that would direct us into a way that would not be godly. 
Peter is calling the readers of his letter, he's calling them to be in control of their thoughts, to be careful of irrational thinking. You know, you deserve this. No one will know. It's not that bad. He's calling them to be well composed in their mind. So think of it this way, to think reasonably, not irrationally. To think reasonably, not irrationally. Uh, One of the ways that we can think irrationally is to blame everything on Satan. I get a headache. Well, it's Satan's fault, okay? You know, I gain all the pounds from the ice cream. Well, that's Satan's fault, okay? I mean, you, you can't blame Satan for everything. And so we need to make sure that we think reasonably, not irrationally. And why? Because right thinking precedes right acting. Right thinking precedes right acting. If we want to do what's right, we need to think about what is right. And that word sober is often used throughout scripture as this metaphor for having mental self-control, from refuting those intoxicating influences. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 6 through 8 says this, therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day, who are children of the light, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We're of the day. We're the children of light. We're called to control our thoughts, to think on that which is good and virtuous. I guess the question comes naturally for us, well, Josh, does it really matter how we think, does it really matter? Dr. Alvaro Pascaleone, he did a study, and this was part of Harvard Medical Center, he did a study uh, with two groups of people. One group would play the piano. They, they would go and they had a piece that they had to learn and they did this every, every day for about two hours, they would practice this piece. They would sit down at the piano, play it out and continue to practice. And at the end of their practice, they would end up having, you know, they would uh, kind of measure, and he had the system of measurement, and so he would measure their progress. Then there was a second group. And this group was this mental practice group. They never touched the piano. They didn't sit down at the piano. All they did was think about playing that piece. And what he found at the end of his study is that both groups saw progress and it was the same, whether they played for real or whether they thought about playing. They both saw progress. And the results there show that uh, the groups learned to play that sequence and the mapping of their brain, uh, they showed similar changes in their brain. You know, I find it funny experiments like this Why? Because the discovery is nothing new. God already told us that thinking profoundly influences us. Proverbs 23, 7, for as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Boy, how I think is going to come out in my actions. Jesus testified to this. I mean, he taught this to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. What did he say? He said, hey, look, adultery starts with lustful thoughts. He said, murder starts with angry thoughts. How we think 
matters. And the way that we approach life uh, with our thoughts is going to matter how we're going to be able to live out the Christian life. The Apostle Paul on battling these intoxicating influences, he warned the church at Corinth, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Again, this is a spiritual battle. This is real, but it's invisible. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every living thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, a stronghold can be a worldview, the lens in which we uh, you know, view our world. A uh, stronghold can be an attitude. It can be worry, it can be fear, it can be guilt. All these strongholds, the Apostle Paul says we have to tear them down. The word actually has this idea of demolishing. This is not just, you know, demo day and, you know, it's all fun. No, this is going in there with a bulldozer and say, get out of my life. That is the level we're talking about here. And we do that, we demolish those strongholds by obeying God's word. That is the way that we battle. Paul told this to Timothy. He said, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Again, through all of this, we have to get rid of these intoxicating influences. So it begs the question, how do we identify those influences? I'm going to give you three filters here. Three filters to help us identify intoxicating influences. And I do suppose there could be some more, but I think these three are a good place for us to start. Filter number one, any thought that draws us away from loving God. Okay, is this thought gonna draw me away from loving God? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven says, Jesus said unto him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and guess what? With all thy mind. Again, with the way that we think. And if there's a thought that comes into our minds that's going to draw us away from this ultimate command, then we need to get rid of it. Any thought, filter number two, any thought that's contrary to virtue and praise. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise... Think on these things. Boy, any thought contrary to virtue and praise, man, it's got to go. Filter it out. Get rid of it. And filter number three, any thought that keeps us from thinking about heavenly things. Anything at all. Colossians 3.2 says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Boy, when he's saying set your affections on things above, he's saying your concentration. Man, we're, we're looking up. We're looking to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is our joy, our satisfaction, uh, the fullness of our life. And we are called to direct our attention and our thoughts towards those things. Look, those are three simple filters that you can use to help refute those intoxicating influences. Peter's first imperative is be sober. His next imperative is be vigilant. Be vigilant. 
Well, I'll say one thing about being in Florida. We've been back now um, 15, about 15 and a half years we've been back in Florida. And there's one thing about Florida, that driving in Florida really increases your prayer life. Okay, for those of you that might be out of town uh, in another state, you might be, you know, going, yes, yes, I've experienced that blessing of an increased prayer life here in Florida. Elijah and I, we were heading out the front gate uh, Wednesday night after church. The light was red, and we were waiting our turn to uh, leave and make that left-hand turn. Now, I have learned to do this. Uh, this is just what I do. Um, I, I, as soon as the light turns green, I know some people are just like, green means go, so they step on the gas and, you know, they're gone. I do not do that, because I live in Florida, and I know better, okay? Here in Florida, people love just to continue driving even though the light just changed to red. So I'm sitting there in the car watching, and sure enough, light goes green. I turn to my left, here comes somebody. I turn to my right, there comes somebody. You know, and I'm like, good night, Florida, what's your problem, you know? The light is red, stop. It's amazing to me that, you know, we have to be that vigilant when we're driving. But I am. I'm careful. I want to be alert. I don't want to make that mistake. Peter is calling these Christians to be vigilant. I, I imagine for them that there would have been a level of frustration. Peter, look, we're already displaced. We're already scattered about. You already mentioned that. And right at the outset, you, you said, hey, you guys are the scattered ones, you know. Now you're telling me that I'm going to have to fight this invisible battle that stands out there and he's roaring, he's, he's my adversary, he's going to devour me? And sure enough, Peter says to them, be vigilant. Y'all, you got to remain awake. Continue to be alert. You got to take note. Why is that? Jesus used an illustration in one of his uh, messages, Matthew 24. And he said this, but know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. You know, he's saying, he's saying look, if, if the owner of the home knew that the thief was going to break in at that time, then the owner of the home would have been ready. He would have been ready to shoo him out, to take care of the thief. The good men would have been vigilant, awake and alert, to ensure his home was not broken into. And wouldn't that be true for us? Well, if I only knew when Satan was going to tempt me, this would make it so much easier. But that's not how Satan works. He has his wiles. Those nasty, cruel ways in which he works in our life. And let me tell you, I hate it. I hate it. Because he knows at just the right mo moment to come in and tempt me. He knows at r the right moment to come and, and roar in my ear to get me to despair and, and to start thinking the wrong thoughts. And I have to come back to God's word and, and cast down those things. And I have to come back and run through the filter of God's word to protect myself and remind myself again that the Christian life is a life of warfare. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Remember when the disciples and Jesus on that final night together, they had their uh, supper together and the last supper. And then Jesus took the disciples, took them to the Garden of Gethsemane. He left some of them. And then he took Peter, James, and John. And they went off into the distance and Jesus began to pray. Remember he came back and what were the disciples doing? Were the disciples being vigilant? Were they awake and alert? Uh, No, scripture tells us a a very different story for them. Jesus comes back in uh, Matthew 26, 40, he says, and he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. And saith unto Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? (laughs) We sleep better than we pray. Our minds wander better than they actually stay watching and alert to what Satan's doing. You know, consider these warnings in the word of God. I mean, uh, Again, it's a roaring lion that Satan's described as, ready to pounce. He's not going to announce anything to us. He's just going to pounce, okay? That's what he does. And yet, throughout Scripture, we find that we don't wait for him to announce his attack. We're called to flee. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. We're supposed to flee fornication. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Anything that would displace God's place in our life, man, we get rid of it. Get it out. Because God should be first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Not your kingdom, not another's kingdom, but seek God first. We're supposed to love him with our entire being. So we flee from idolatry. Paul's talking to Timothy, both in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And he says, in 1 Timothy, he says this, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Don't go after them. Flee them. Don't wait. Don't hang around. Get out of there. 2 Timothy 2.22, he says this to Timothy, flee also youthful lusts. Y'all, there's a, a great, great command for you and I. Flee. Get out. So often when it comes with temptation, we linger. And then if we linger, that's when he's going to pounce. It's when he, we're going to fall into temptation. We're going to give in. You and I, we need to flee temptation. We need to get away before it gets us. Peter's first two imperatives, be sober, be vigilant. And this final imperative, resist steadfast resist steadfast let's look at verse 9 and kind of just remind ourselves a little bit about where we're going he says whom resist steadfast in the faith knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world Spurgeon was preaching on first Peter chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9 and he said this 
Satan can roar also in the Christian's ears with blasphemies. Oh, the terrors which Satan has sometimes caused to God's people by saying, ah, you are not a child of God, or you would not have so vile a nature. Now, if he roars against you, either with persecution or with temptation, or with diabolical insinuations, take the language of our apostle here, whom resist steadfast in the faith. This idea of resist steadfast. I mean, we're talking about being in opposition to Satan, of opposing what he is doing, opposing those wiles, those temptations that he gives. And we do so not with this weakness about us, but with determination, with this unshakable, unshakable, resolute spirit that I am not going to give in. There is no way. And this is actually a biblical stance. Ephesians 6 tells us, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Again, verse 12, we've read already, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. But then he says this, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand there's that idea of resist, same word as in 1 Peter 5, 9, in the evil day, and catch this, and having done all to stand. Whom resist steadfast? Everything you and I have, we are to resist Satan's wiles, his temptations. Peter's key to this resistance, this withstanding against spiritual wickedness is our faith. It's not in our strength. My stars, if I had to live in my strength, I'll be back at those bowls of ice cream again. I mean, that's just what's going to happen. We don't do it in our strength. Praise God, we do it through his strength. We would not be able to resist Satan's wiles and temptations. We would not be able to resist those intoxicating influences unless it was for him. Micah 7, 8. Listen to this verse, it's so beautiful. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. It is the Lord that gives us the way out. It's the Lord that provides us with the strength. It's the Lord that helps us. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is the reality. This is resisting steadfast in the faith. Satan has been lying to humanity for some 6,000 years. Again, think about that, the practice that he has gotten over the years. He is a master liar and deceiver. All that he offers to us is just a pack full of lies. That's all it is. Jesus warned us in John 8, 44, ye are of the father devil and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and both not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh, here's that warning, when he speaketh, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. The lies of Satan, quite frankly, are often compelling. They're convincing how often we're drawn to this world and we see the prosperity that it offers, the shininess. 
And in our own suffering, in our own challenges, in our own living out our faith, how difficult it can sometimes be. And here's some lies that he gives to us. The roars that you and I might hear as we try to live out our faith. Lie number one. God is not good. God is not good. Yea, hath God said, is what Satan said to Eve. Yea, hath God said? Come on, Eve, is God really good? You go back in Genesis chapter 2 and you see that God told Adam that they could freely eat of all these trees except for one. But the word freely, you can partake freely of all of them, just not this one. You know what God did there? I mean, he stacked the deck in the favor of Adam and Eve. He gave them everything they needed. And said, hey, look, I'm putting all this stuff here. This is all for you. Just don't eat this one tree. Go try all the others, enjoy them, take as much as you want. And yet Satan comes in and says, yea, hath God said, hey, God is not good. That's what Satan whispers in our ears and we begin to buy into that lie. We begin to seek another way. We begin to worry. Oh, we worry about tomorrow. We worry about the past. We begin to panic. You know, God isn't good. He's not going to take care of this. He's not going to do that. Oh, I, want, I gotta. And all of a sudden, we're quite the mess. Let me give you another lie. You are weak you are weak the apostle Paul dealing with that thorn in his flesh the Lord gave him some incredible encouragement that you and I go to often it says and he said unto me my grace is sufficient for thee for my strength is made perfect in weakness and the Apostle Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. David said in Psalm 18, it is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. Y'all again, and look at this here. We're not, we may be weak, but our God is not. Our God is strong. And our God will give us the power that we need to live out our faith. Faithful is he who calls you, who also will do it. We are not weak through Jesus Christ. Lie number three, you are alone. You are alone. Now, I think it doesn't matter what age you are, doesn't matter what stage you are, this gets us quite often. Even the most popular of people feel alone, feel that nobody is with them. Even people surrounded by family can still feel alone. And yet there's a great truth for us. I think for even these that were facing some difficult days, scattered abroad, persecution coming, Nero building up to that moment when he would burn Rome and blame the Christians. All of that is going to transpire in the years ahead for them. And I'm sure at times for them, they felt alone, apart from everybody else. But as uh, one dear campus church member would often remind me of Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, 
And he would always say, Josh, they're my favorite verses. Let your covetousness be with, or let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Those are powerful words for you and for me. They're powerful because one, they're true. They're powerful because we've all experienced the presence of God in our lives. We've all experienced his goodness. We've all experienced him helping. Satan wants us to think we're alone. And yet even now in this place, God is here. God is with us today. Peter reminds these that are scattered abroad at the end of verse 9. He says, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. He told them, hey, look, others are going through it just like you. You know what we think? I'm the only one dealing with this. This problem in my marriage, I'm the only one dealing with it. This problem with my kids, I'm the only one dealing with it. This problem at work, I'm the only one dealing with it. Oh, there are other Christians that are experiencing similar situations. And you and I are not alone. Lie number four, you are hopeless. You are hopeless. This comes often after we've given in to temptation, after we've succumbed to those wiles and we've drank of those intoxicating influences. And then we feel defeated. And we look at ourselves and say, there's no hope. And there is a merciful God, as I read earlier in the service. It reaches up to the heavens. His faithfulness into the clouds. The idea, no matter where you and I go, we'll find mercy, we'll find him being faithful. And I want you to understand today that we have a living hope, one that is genuine, one that contrasts that vain and emptiness that Satan offers we have the confident expectation that if we are f- confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus will keep his word. He will keep his promises. We are not hopeless. And lie number five, you are a failure. Oh, Proverbs reminds us that the just man falleth seven times. Hey, we do trip, we do stumble, we do fall, we do give in to temptation. But he gives us this wonderful reality and riseth up again. You know, yes, even Christian said, hey, I've been unfaithful. He admitted to that and he even told the Pollyons, even more than what you brought up, there's been other things. Yet he said that the king would forgive him show mercy and it doesn't matter how far you've strayed today whether you're here in this auditorium whether you're watching by way of live stream it does not matter how far you have strayed there is a merciful forgiving God who is calling out to you amidst those roars from your enemy those lies are simply the roars he makes that Satan makes to discourage and deter us from doing God's will. The way we beat those lies is we destroy them with God's word. You know, quite honestly, for these 
uh, scattered abroad Christians. Peter gave them one one great verse of hope here in verse 10. Let's look at that and then we're going to wrap this up. But it says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. He will make you unmovable. Y'all, we have an epic end. There is coming a day when our enemy will be cast away forever. I can't wait. I, I don't know how much, you know, what that's going to look like. I have no idea how that's going to be. But I know that I'll be re- rejoicing in all that my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has wrought. I know I'll be so excited to be a part of all that he has in store for me in heaven. Today, you and I are in a battle. That's our reality right now. There's a spiritual battle going on. We're going to leave here. We'll go to our places, go out to eat, go home to eat, whatever, you know. But there's going to be a spiritual battle. Those wiles, those temptations are going to come. And we need to be sober. We need to control our thoughts, watch them. We need to be vigilant, vigilant of his wiles, his his temptations. And then we need to resist steadfast. Be unshakable to make sure that we are not listening to those roars, but we're listening to the uh, sweet, beautiful voice of our loving Savior. Edgar Page wrote the hymn, uh, Trusting Jesus. It's titled simply, Trusting Every Day. I want you to listen to these words and, and then we'll be done. Simply trusting every day, trusting through a stormy way, Even when my faith is small, trusting Jesus, that is all. Trusting as the moments fly, trusting as the days go by, trusting him whatever befall, trusting Jesus, that is all. Let me encourage you, trust Jesus. Trust him. You know, we have an enemy. He is fierce, diabolical, full of hatred towards God and his people. So we'll be sober. We'll be vigilant. We'll resist steadfast in the faith, all the while trusting in our loving Savior, knowing that He always has our best in mind. 